Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose, and what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with the co-founder of the neighborhood network next door, Prakash Janakiraman. Stay tuned. No matter where we are, we have neighbors. It could be where you live, where you work, where you play. We coexist and find connections to hopefully nurture and build community. And speaking of community, thank you for listening to the show, for sharing it with your friends, for downloading, subscribing, and rating the podcast on your favorite platforms, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. Now, in my own experience growing up and when visiting relatives in India or discovering new environments, neighborly relationships were critical, reflecting the society's zeitgeist, imprinting memories, and creating a variety of personal fabrics woven through friendship, trust, and security. In the last several years, through the confluence of our digital networks and while wading through a pandemic, we've been rediscovering our neighborhoods, while also navigating through rising tides of tribalism and mistrust. Over a decade ago, a Pew Research study found that almost 30% of Americans only knew a few of their neighbors, and almost 30% couldn't identify a single neighbor by name. Quite stunning for a culture where despite our amazing digital connectivity, the social epidemics of loneliness, equity gaps, housing crises, and systemic racism have all seemingly blossomed. Not surprisingly, it was this research that motivated Prakash Janaki Raman to help bridge this gap in social capital by co-founding the neighborhood network known as Nextdoor. After plenty of seasoning in Silicon Valley, Prakash helped build Nextdoor to find a solution to community building that was local and trustworthy, aiming to accelerate the bridge between a powerful online networking utility and the neighbors who may literally be, well, Nextdoor. And today, nearly one in three American households uses Nextdoor. Prakash now serves as Nextdoor's head of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and is passionate about the sociologic research and data that drives his work, so much so that he's going back to school to finish his degree in sociology. We had a chance to catch up recently to talk more about Nextdoor and his terrific journey and outlook, and we started by chatting about his own neighborhood experience as an Indian American growing up in Hayward, California. You know, for me, I had an almost idyllic childhood, as you think about the role that community played for me growing up. And that I think that's what drew me to this challenge of, of starting a company like Nextdoor. So I grew up in Hayward, about nine miles south of Oakland here in the Bay Area. And my dad came here in 1967, immigrated here from, from India to study at Berkeley, and ended up deciding to stay like so many other immigrants at that time. And we just, you know, kind of hit the jackpot that we ended up growing up in a place like the Bay Area that was diverse, multicultural, and we grew up in the suburbs. And so I actually knew a lot of my neighbors. I, we had kids up and down the block. I used to ride bikes with them and have slumber parties and play sports with them. And so this idea of, you know, it takes a village to raise a child really resonated with me and, and similarly with my co-founders. And so for me, you know, I played youth sports. 
I went to public schools my entire life, public schools that, you know, started out in my community. The kids that went to school with me lived amongst me. And so I always felt very, very supported and felt like the community was something that I took for granted. Um, And, you know, the other thing that was interesting growing up in the Bay Area at that time, or at least in Hayward, was I very quickly became comfortable and kind of took for granted the diversity that we had in the Bay Area. So hearing voices that didn't sound like my own, listening to languages being spoken that didn't sound like my own, seeing faces and cultures and expressions of culture, you know, it was all around me. So, And and it sounds like your parents very much embraced that whole idea of mixture and blending and embracing the community that they were living in, you know, also trying to preserve some identity when it comes to being Indian American. Yeah. And so for me, I I did grow up in that dual existence as Indian American and not quite sure how to navigate that. So I remember there would be times that, you know, I always had grandparents in my house. I felt very blessed and fortunate that one set of grandparents was always with us. But we would go out to round table or someplace to go have a pizza. And my grandmother would bring a tiffin carrier with her because she had a very strict diet. She wouldn't eat cheese. She wouldn't eat garlic. And and in the tiffin carrier would be like some idlis and what we would call bolapuri, which is like a spicy dip. And, you know, you eat with your hands. And I would be like, oh, my God, I can't (laughs) believe that you're doing this in round table. Like, oh, my God. And someone might see us. And the the funny part with that is that people in your neighborhood, chances are they would not know you or your grandmother or be able to perhaps even understand that. And I'm curious, as Nextdoor has now, you know, obviously exploded and expanded and become more of a a global utility, has it come into focus that this is much more of an American phenomenon? For that matter, people not necessarily getting to know their neighbors or not necessarily having that familiarity with them? You know, it's actually more global than one would think. And it's interesting because the seminal work that inspired us to create the company. So it was that piece of research, the Pew Research yeah. study that, sh- that said that so few people know their neighbors. But really, it was, it was the work of Dr. Robert Putnam, who is a Harvard sociologist. He was the head of the sociology department. He wrote this book called Bowling Alone. Mm-hmm. And he describes, and it's U.S.-centric, but a lot of it can be extrapolated to other countries, that there were three reasons for this massive and precipitous uh, decline in social capital, which is just yes. a measure of the number of people you know in your local community. Yeah. And two of the reasons are technological. One is sociological, but related. The first one is that mobility changed everything about community. So as people could afford cars, as there proliferated new means of transportation, like trains and planes and automobiles, people began to move away from the communities in which they lived for generations and generations. Mm-hmm fracturing those ties in their local community that's global that's happening all over the world and you you go back to countries like india people are leaving villages moving to the cities people are moving from the cities and emigrating out of india so mobility plays a big role and then the second was actually television which now you can extrapolate to the internet Internet. yeah and look when our parents were growing up and decided to immigrate to the united states they didn't have the benefit of television and cable television and the internet. So when my dad said, I'm going to go to UC Berkeley, he had no idea where UC Berkeley was. He didn't know anything about the campus. He didn't know any of the people here. He just jumped on a plane and came. He probably read a a brochure about it or heard from some guy in an upper (laughs) class than him that like, hey, yeah, maybe you should go here. My son went there, right? Right. And so television and the internet has now made the world accessible and expanded the possibilities for us individually beyond just our community. 
Yeah. And so with those two technological advances, now comes the sociological function that younger people and our, you know, the next generation, your kids, my kids will someday live in a world where the possibilities are completely endless for them. Yeah. They can yeah. peer into every corner of the world and they're going to have the means to go there and explore that. So that I think is a global phenomenon. You know, what's interesting about that, and I'm thinking of my own dad's experience where he had to do a similar thing where he was kind of weighing the possibility of USC in Southern California versus North Carolina. Obviously not having anything but just some basic trust in in what yeah. perhaps, you know, somebody told him or an upperclassman, like you totally. said. And, and we sort of live in an era now where the instinct is to both corroborate things online, but at the same time, it's hard for us to necessarily always trust the internet, right? So, so how, how do you cultivate and maintain trust in this perhaps incredibly confusing environment? Yeah, it's interesting because if you look at some of the leading research on trust, the leading research, at least in, the, in this country, is the Edelman Trust Barometer. Mm. It's basically a public survey that goes out and asks people, hey, in these different dimensions of society, where do you place your trust? Is yeah. it in the government and in government institutions? Is it in business? And it turns out, unsurprisingly, that trust in government institutions is at a near all-time low, right? It's the reason that nobody trusts the CDC or uh, the president or whoever it is, whoever, right? And right. business leaders actually have managed to maintain a fair amount of trust. And so that's why you see more activity from the business community around social issues and chiming in on the issues of the world. Yeah. But really where trust is remains very, very strong is with your neighbors and in your local community. And so this idea that you just touched upon of tribal trust and, you know, these trust networks, they're more important than ever in a world mm -hmm. where everything else is kind of crumbling around us. Well, we yeah. need to come back together in our communities. You know, for, for those of us who have straddled eras where we would communicate via phone call or communicate literally by walking next door um, yeah. and, and knocking on a door versus the you know text and Snapchat generation now. Have you found that the friction to be able to even initiate that kind of contact in a, in a real way is one that there is some generation, huge generational dif differences there? Yeah, I think so. I think the, the younger generations are for, for, for lack of a better characterization, they have a shorter attention span because yeah. they're consuming nuggets of information in parallel streams that are hitting them from all different directions. Right. And so, yeah, the idea that you would sit down and read cover to cover a book or sit down and have a 30-minute conversation uninterrupted by your phone or any other distractions, uh, it just doesn't happen, right? Or, or and, walk across the street to find out like, hey, does your neighbor have any advice on how to fix something or, or to borrow a tool? Or even, you know, there's research now showing that picking up the phone when it yeah. rings and having a conversation causes anxiety and that right. people prefer to com communicate by text. And yeah. so, like, what kind of world are we living in where the, the sound of another human being's voice is creating anxiety for you? It's another human being that you know and probably like, right, that you'd rather just communicate with them digitally. For you, was there sort of epiphanies like that or even some personal signature moments that galvanized the creation of sort of the first next door experiment, whether that's the you know first time you even thought about this or the kernels that helped to found this idea or even the sort of Menlo Park experiment? Were there some sort of tangible nuggets that, that sort of helped galvanize this? 
Yeah, I think, so it started with purpose, right? We really understood that there was a problem in the world, that social capital had eroded so badly. And we found that to be unusual in a world where connection had proliferated so greatly. So you had platforms where you could connect with friends and family all around the world. You could connect with people with whom you shared interests, didn't even know them. And you could also cultivate your professional identity in places like LinkedIn. But you didn't know the person on the other side of the wall or right across the street. So we, we had a lot of conviction that there was an opportunity to build a network at the same scale and dimension as any of those other networks. Yeah. So it started with that. But then we started to look at the research, particularly Putnam's research. And we said, okay, what are the institutions and what are the drivers of this fracturing of community? And then what on the other side could the p- potential benefits be? And Putnam yeah. is very clear in his conclusions uh, of Bowling Alone that more social capital in communities, people knowing their neighbors and having that reciprocal support of their neighbors leads to better outcomes. So crime rates drop, property values increase, education and test outcomes improve, and people in fact live longer in communities in which you know your neighbors. So then for us, the mission became very clear. How can we create online social capital driven by proximity, right? So next door is proximity, not preference. So you're not trying to cultivate followers or you're not trying to build, you know, a friend graph. You're out just communicating with the people who actually live amongst you. So we figured, okay, look, if we're going to build a network like that, but the backdrop is that most people don't know their neighbors, we fundamentally have to construct it in a different way that creates attraction to a network like that. So it had to be about utility, building up a hive mind of knowledge in your local community based on authentic people, real people, verified to real addresses. And so that's kind of where the sentiment of trust began was what can we do to make sure that every person on next door is a verified resident of the community? No trolls, no bots, no lurkers. These are your real neighbors. And that people are going to use the network, not necessarily, we don't always get this right, but not necessarily as they're kind of public pew or you know podium to rant about anything that they want but really a place where you can go and say hey neighbors i'm looking for a recommendation for dot 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 yeah babysitter plumber auto mechanic hey neighbors i'm trying to sell a used couch or a bike and that your neighbors can kind of come together collectively as a hive mind of knowledge and help you solve those problems and in so doing by building each of those helpful interactions you're actually lighting up a node of social capital yeah. And that social capital could translate to something in the real world. Like if your pet goes missing and someone returns that pet to you, you're going to have an in-person conversation. If you sell your couch to a neighbor, you're going to have that in-person conversation. And yeah. through that, you find out your kids go to the same school or you've been living in the neighborhood for the same sure. amount of time. You know, it assumes, of course, that that people want to connect with their neighbors, that people want right. to have <laughs> these kinds of interactions. And hopefully, of course, it organically breeds a lot more you know, connectivity and, and then, and yet it's still, you know, something that is at least initiated online. Yeah. And, and so, you know, for you, have you found that there is some kind of role that Nextdoor has to balancing what exists in the sort of online and virtual environment and what exists in, in sort of real time? And, and of course, you know, as a utility, you can only take it so far. That's right. That's right. So we, we like to talk about Nextdoor in the following way. We say, come for the utility, stay for the community. Yeah. So the utility is generally your entree into using Nextdoor. And you're like, oh, you know, I'm looking for a contractor. Let me ask my neighbors for a recommendation for a contractor. 
inevitably that spins up a conversation that says, Hey, listen, we just redid our kitchen. We live, you know, right down the street from you. Come on over and you can take a look and we can put you in touch with the contractor. That inevitably leads to the next conversation, which is, oh, wow. Okay. How long have you been living here? And what else have you done in your home? And, oh, wow, you have some kids too. And so that's kind of what we aim to do is get people to initiate a conversation that potentially starts in a place of utility, but then builds towards something where the human being on the other side of that conversation, that's really just an icon or an avatar in the name, turns into a real full three-dimensional human being in real life with whom you now have trust. And that trust builds an ability to have a reciprocal relationship, you know, what Putnam calls reciprocity, which is, you know, the next time you think about, hey, I need somebody to roll out my garbage cans, or I need somebody to, you know, I I ran out of sugar or toilet paper or hand sanitizer. Well, maybe I can call this helpful neighbor who I already know is helpful, right? Does Nextdoor have a role in addressing other social issues, homelessness being one of them, or even being sort of transiently homeless. Yeah. Have you guys ventured into that conversation? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. Number one is we believe that Nextdoor operates in the zeitgeist. So any of the issues that are happening more broadly in society are going to come into our platform and people are going to want to talk about them with their neighbors. So there's no such thing as an issue that doesn't have local relevance. Everything has local relevance. So here in the Bay Area, for example, when it comes to homelessness, what we want people to do is have constructive civil conversations addressing the concerns that they have about homelessness in their communities. We don't want these to go toxic. We don't want them to go into into a bad place. And so what we're trying to do is develop empathy for the people on the other side of this issue. And you and I both know people come to homelessness in a number of different ways. A lot of the, you know, kind of prevailing memes and sentiments around what a homeless person or what a homeless situation looks like are just patently false. Yeah. So understanding that, what is the role for a, a platform like Nextdoor? Number one, to facilitate um, constructive conversation. Number two, to drive empathy towards the human beings that are being afflicted by this condition. So if you're going to post a message about homelessness on Nextdoor, we will actually interject and pop an intervention into the product experience before you post to remind you, hey, listen, you're talking about people in your community. Yeah. And you're talking about real human beings. So do so with empathy and kindness, right? And it's a manifestation of, you know, this program that we've done throughout the, the, the product. We have a kindness reminder. We have a homelessness reminder. We have a COVID-19 misinformation reminder. Mm-hmm. We have an anti-racism and discrimination reminder. And they all drive from that same psychological research that says, just slow yourself down, think about what you're about to post, and then post it. And in most cases, we see almost you know, a third of people who encounter that will either go back and modify their post, which means that's a good, that's good, a good thing, right? And in many cases, they'll abandon it, which yeah. is also a good thing in our mind, because we yeah. don't want the kind of engagement at all costs mentality that you see on other platforms. We're, we're trying to drive community. We're trying to build a sense of belonging and community. I love that, that there's this AI ability to have people be more thoughtful about what their posts and what their messages are going to feel like on the other side, on the recipient side. Yeah. And, and yet, when we have real conversations in groups in our communities, in our households, in our neighborhoods, you know, there's that automatic sort of social check that's going on, um, mm-hmm. you know, with people that you've developed relationships with. And, and you know, next door now is I hear in one in every three households in, in the U.S. And yeah, and here in the U.S. That's right. 
So it's a penetrance is, is huge. And for you kind of as a leader and a founder of color of South Asian and Indian American background, how does that part inform now your sense of responsibility to community building? And especially with the idea of diversity and equity and inclusion sort of being top of mind. Yeah, I think first is just playing back my own lived experience, right? We talked about my childhood growing up in Hayward. What I took for granted about community was not what everybody takes for granted uh, about community and wasn't the community that everyone experienced. And so it wasn't until I actually came into Silicon Valley. So again, I went to Berkeley, Berkeley, you know, I had a diverse set of friends and community. And then something happened when I left Berkeley and I moved into Silicon Valley and I joined my first Silicon Valley company. I kind of had this moment where I looked around and I said, how come none of the people that I hang out with or that I've hung out with my entire life are here in this room building products with me or participating in this economy? And it was the first time that I really felt othered in Mm. uh, up until that point, right? I'd never really felt othered for my South Asian identity. You know, there were kids that would make make jokes and things like that, but I never felt like deeply, deeply a stranger in a strange place in that sense. One quick thought right there is, is that I think people perhaps have this misperception that as an Indian American in Silicon Valley, that because there are so many other Indian Americans, that that's a proxy for great diversity and, and the sort of diversity maybe that you enjoyed on campus or in Hayward. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and, and it comes back to this idea that like not all Indian Americans or South Asians, we're not a monolith yeah. either. I mean, there is rich diversity in the subcontinent. Absolutely. But even when you come back to the States, a, a kid growing up in rural Texas is going to have a different experience. And, you know, my co-founder, for example, my co-founder here grew up in Odessa, Texas. Yeah. His experience, if you asked him, did you ever feel othered, would be radically different. So, you know, probably three years ago, we had a leadership transition where uh, our new CEO, Sarah Fryer, came on board and with her our new head of people, a guy named Brian Power, wonderful people. And they came to me and they said, listen, Prakash, we would like for you as the remaining founder in the company to take on the role of head of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belong. And as it turns out, you know, the summer of 2020, post-George Floyd's murder, was a really difficult time for companies all around the world, sure. let alone a company that exists in the zeitgeist, as we talked about, right? And for me, it was my opportunity to say, hey, listen, We're going to put our purpose and and, and mission front and center. We are going to divert resources in the company to really walk the walk. We're going to bring together people from my own community and from my community and my walks and travels around the table, including people like Derek Johnson, who is the CEO of the NAACP. Derek, come on in. You have a seat at the table. We built a neighborhood vitality advisory board, includes people like Tracy Mears, who's the head of the, the Yale Justice Collaboratory. Um, we have a wonderful woman, Joteka Edie, who we work with as well. And we said, we're going to put civil rights front and center when we think about everything that we do at Nextdoor. And in order to live up to that ideal, we need to shape our company to look the same. We need to start yes. to build inside of our company. And there are obviously huge systemic challenges to this. Like yeah. Nextdoor becoming more diverse as a company doesn't solve the systemic challenges. It models right. good behavior, models good corporate citizenship. But what we want to do is link arms with all of the different companies in Silicon Valley that have grown and have had the benefit of growing as we have and say, like, what can we do to contribute back to 
build a richer ecosystem and, a, and, and broader pathways for people to participate in Silicon Valley. And I mean, in, in that sort of same spirit, having this great corporate citizenship and understanding that it really needs to model, you know, from within and having everyone take a seat at the table. Do you still think that, you know, we're moving the needle when it comes to this kind of deficit of social capital for people, not just in, in companies and in Silicon Valley, but, uh, or in the corporate space, but definitely, you know, in our, in our cultural, you know, societal space, is it, still steeped in some tribalism, whether, and, and are we prone to that um, in, in various conversations? You know, when I use Nextdoor, I, I sort of see it, of course, for the person who's complaining about the dog barking next door or, or whatnot. But then I yep. also see it perhaps as that kind of social lubricator, right, to building connection and empathy. I, I just wonder what you think about how far we are actually moving the needle when it comes to those deficits of social capital and preventing, you know, loneliness as a mechanism okay. of even our, our just general health and vibrancy as a society. Yeah, I think there, there are two kind of interesting trends that are happening right now. Number one, without a doubt, polarization is getting worse, um, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. And yes. so polarization, there's a backdrop of polarization that is very dangerous uh, right now where people are moving into tribes, they are not listening to one another, and that's happening in the political landscape and all kinds of different places, even in public health at this yeah. point. Now, at the same time, we are also seeing, probably in part because of the pandemic and the effects that it's had on us kind of retreating back into our communities, uh, a fostering of community and help, unlike which we've never seen. Yeah. And so at a local level, I think we do have reason to believe that things are getting better. In fact, we conducted a study in partnership with this woman, um, Julianne holt Lundstedt. She's at BYU and she studies social connection. She's a professor who studies social connection. And she, we chartered some research with her that ended up showing that knowing as few as six of your neighbors drastically reduces the probability that you'll be lonely, depressed, anxious. So it's complicated, but then there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic that, yeah. you know, the way that we characterize it, the neighborhood can be the unit of change. Because if you trust your neighbors, if you know your neighbors, and your quality of life is improving as a result of knowing your neighbors, well, then you're starting to link arms in a way that blurs race yeah. or political identity or any of these other things. Yeah. And the more we can humanize our interactions the less that other stuff tends to matter, right? We, it it kind of sorts out in the laundry a little more. And with that, Prakash, as, as you think about sort of how effective the utility is of Nextdoor and even in your own sort of lived experience of, of humanizing and, yeah. and bringing that sense of humanity to conversations, to relationships, to the people around you and building sort of concentric circles of those relationships around you, when you think of yourself as an Indian American, as a leader, as a global citizen, as someone who has developed some great empathy for neighborhoods around the world now, as you go forward with that optimism, what brings you joy when you are reflecting on an average day, both sort of professionally and personally? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I've, I've been reading a lot more, reading listening to books, really, because uh, since the pandemic started, I've been going for walks a lot. You know, I'm now 46 years old, I'm gonna be 47, going on to the back nine of life. And, you know, I, I start to think about 
purpose a lot and really what drives purpose and purpose to me kind of aligns to joy, right? Mm. When you feel like you're living a life of purpose and you're, you're able to make a difference in people's lives, um, that to me makes me really happy, you know, beyond the, the simple things in life. And what gets me up in the morning is a better understanding of what is driving people to be their best selves. And like, what can I do to help inspire people or facilitate people being their best selves? And so in part, one of the reasons I'm going back to school, so I dropped out of Berkeley my, you know, end of my junior year. So I've got about a year to go. Yeah. Um, and I was doing computer science at the time. I was undeclared and I wasn't a good student. I was all over the place, but I'm going back and I'm doing a sociology degree. Mm. And the reason for that is, Number one, I'm an adult and I can choose my major now instead of being, you know, pushed into That's whatever right, it was yeah. back then. So, but, but secondly, because I think I'm pretty clear minded on my purpose now. And my purpose is, is almost, you know, exactly what next door's purpose is. Yeah. Like, look, I want to show up in the world. I want the world to be kinder. And so I want to make sense of it so that I can help other people make sense of it so that we can then enjoy more joy together, right? Because, more than anything, it kind of saps my joy to see the state of the world in many ways. And so I'll be more joyful when like the world is more joyful. Um, Prakash, I, I know that so many people are celebrating what you're doing and, and we are too. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope we'll come back and visit us again. No, of course. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thanks, Prakash. Go Bears and good luck in school this year. Loneliness is a major public health crisis and it costs nothing to be friendly and kind. Remember, in a digital world, it's our humanity that always saves us. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar. Ruckus Avenue Radio.